right. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Chad Bailey, and uh, I have the privilege of being the church planter in residence uh, here at Frisco Bible Church, and would love to talk more about the work that, uh, that we, and by that I mean me, my family, and also we are doing in Salina. Uh, I also want to continue our study in First Peter, so we're going to do that, uh, but would love to talk about the church plant and what God is doing, uh, certainly as the opportunity arises. Uh, you can, men, you can take me to coffee or buy me lunch, and I'll spill all the beans. Um, <clears throat> Wayne is continuing his study break this week, and uh, again, have the privilege to continue our series and our study. And, uh, and since I didn't catch you before you sat down, let me read for us, and maybe you have an attitude and a posture of standing in honor, if you'd like. Let me read for us just the, the first couple verses. It'll get us out of the gates for our study this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, it's there in your, your bulletin. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll read uh, first just verses 20 and 21. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The word of the Lord. In the 19-teens, American football hadn't quite caught on. It sort of had a shady reputation known for gambling and the like. Um, but there would be a Native American running back that played for the Canton Bulldogs, who had almost single-handedly <clears throat> legitimized the sport of American football. His name was James Francis Thorpe. We know him as, anybody know? Jim Thorpe. Yeah. This is a big deal because Jim Thorpe uh, was a Native American. And Native Americans, because of maybe some, uh, some prejudice that was happening, you might even call it racism, based on maybe some misconceived notions of how weak Native Americans were at the time, which they would be proven wrong quite quickly, but it's a big deal that he almost single-handedly legitimized the sport because college-level play was, uh, was, was barely an option. Very few schools, like the Carlisle Indian School, allowed for college play. Uh, and then at the pro level, it was almost cut off completely to Native Americans. After all, they were not allowed to vote, weren't recognized as citizens at the time. But <clears throat> the remarkable, and as one commentator said, mutant uh, athletic prowess and ability of Jim Thorpe could not go unnoticed. You could not ignore it. Uh, if you just look at the 1912 football season alone, you, you would recognize this. In the 1912 football season, just in one season, he ran for just under 1,900 yards on less than 200 carries. Okay, now if you're a math whiz, whiz that's an average of how many yards per carry-ish? Just under 10 yards, I didn't hear a single correct answer, and I don't think my notes are wrong. 200 yards, or 200 carries for 1,900 yards, it's an average of 10 yards per carry. If you know anything about football, you only need 10 yards to get a first down, and then it resets. You get four more chances. So he could do in one try, on average, what you, they, they gave you four chances to do in a football game. So otherwise, offensively unstoppable. Oh, by the way, he also played every single snap on defense. 
Remarkably, almost unbelievably, that very same year, he competed in the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, and he won gold in the pentathlon, five events, and the decathlon, ten events, uh, prompting the king, like a compliment is great, but a compliment from a king is amazing, but winning gold that way won uh, him the privilege of this King Gustav V of Sweden saying, sir, you are the most or the greatest athlete in the world. What a compliment. So that the rest of Jim Thorpe's story as an athlete and even as a Native American, as a human being perhaps, uh, is kind of, the, the rest is sort of history. In summary, the prejudice or the, the oppression that he faced, he, he fought through it all and he ran over all of the obstacles on the field, so to speak, and off. And he helped pave the way for many other Native Americans to also play and enjoy the blessing of athletics. Uh, one great example <clears throat> is uh, Sam Bradford, Boomer Sooner, by the way. Uh, Sam and I are from the same hometown. He played for a, a competing high school uh, to where th- that I went to. And if I were a year older, I played baseball, and I would have hit against him as a pitcher. So I didn't have that privilege, but I was this close. But, but guys like Sam Bradford to go on and be number one NFL multi-million dollar draft picks, in part, was made possible because of Jim Thorpe. But... If there is anyone who has ever sacrificially blazed a trail for us to go on and do the impossible, it is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And while many athletes would stand on Jim Thorpe's shoulders and experience honor and blessing and opportunity, we stand on the shoulders of what Christ has accomplished. And according to Peter, we do more than stand on his shoulders. We walk in his steps. And by doing so, listen, this is... Peter's point in our passage, by doing so, by standing on Christ's shoulders, by faith in him, we receive his reward. And by walking in his footsteps, we are able to do the impossible, which is this, suffer mistreatment in a way that pleases God. And so like I did during the first service, no one took me up on it. But if, if you've got this under your belt, like this is no problem for you. Like you can suffer mistreatment in a godly way without exception. You are free to go. Go enjoy brunch or breakfast. But I mean, this is one of the, the more difficult things and sacrificial things of the Christian life. And so praise God once again, which is not an exception for us Christians, we can say, We have an example in Christ. And more than that, he gives us his spirit to help us. So in the same way, uh, without uh, what Christ has done and without him helping us, this would be impossible. And yet, as Peter says in our passage, we are called to this. And so Peter's goal is to prepare us this morning. To prepare the Christian for mistreatment, specifically, super granular, very practical. To prepare the Christian for mistreatment. The principle applies everywhere, but he has in his mind, at work, and in the home. As the great theologian Kanye West said, what? Oh, he said, it's those closest to you who know you best can push your buttons like typewrites. You know what I'm talking about? They can push your buttons, but but Peter knows, and our good Lord knows, they can do far more than just push our our buttons. They can can hurt us. They can harm us. They can offend us. And neglect and cause serious pain for which Peter and God in his infinite wisdom wants to prepare us. And so a few questions just to kind of prime our hearts and minds to apply this. A few questions for us. 
Under whose authority do you bristle and find difficult to submit? Next question, who do you struggle to serve or follow without, of course, having resentment or unforgiveness in your heart? With whom does being a Christian result in being disliked or misunderstood or maybe worse? I'm not trying to rip a scab off this morning, but, but I, I want to I test. I want to kind of pressure test how we have dealt with these things. Have we dealt with these things in a way that pleases God? And if so, praise God. I think you'll be encouraged this morning. But if not, I think it's worth re-asking, kind of bringing up from the depths something that might be painful for us. And so with that, let's learn to stand firm in Christ's likeness. Let's learn to be undaunted as we follow Christ and how we suffer and as we serve. And so Peter's logic is very simple. You'll see this in your bulletin. Uh, It could not be more simple of an outline. Three questions and then two points for us this morning. What did Jesus do? What are we to do? And then how in the world are we going to do such an impossible thing? Firstly, what did Jesus do? Let's keep reading our passage starting in verse 21. We'll start where it says, Christ here, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We we sang this. We just read this in Isaiah 53. Yes. And so in summary, what what Peter's saying is really two things. One, he endured unjust treatment. And he, he says, he gets even more clear, for you, Christian. For all who would believe, he took your pain and guilt and, and, the, and the shame that comes with that pain as well. And he took it and he suffered mistreatment to pay the ultimate price on the cross for your sin and for mine. But he did so for us, right? So that we would be standing on his shoulders by faith in him, be blessed and forgiven and reconciled to God. But he didn't just suffer unjust treatment. Look at what else Peter says. He did so sinlessly without committing sin. He did not retaliate. He did not revile. He did so sinlessly. And so summary, what did Jesus do? Well, he suffered mistreatment sinlessly. Verse 24 through 3, chapter 3, verse 9 answers the second question. So with that answer, let's move on. What are we to do? What did Jesus do? He suffered mistreatment sinlessly. What are we to do? Let's keep on reading. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter's basically saying because of all Jesus did, we are no longer slaves to sin, right? Whenever he says we have died to sin, Wayne went into detail on this last week. I would commend uh, that message to you anyways, but you'll understand a little bit more of kind of what Peter's getting at when he writes in Romans 6 through 8, that we are freed from the power of sin. Our will is freed now in a way that it wasn't before we were saved to desire to please God and actually have the power to obey God. What what a miracle. And so Peter is saying, because all that Jesus has done, we are free. Uh, We are now able to do what we ought, and that is to live for righteousness. And then he goes into detailed instructions for slaves, wives, husbands, and then all of us. Nobody is left out here. First, 
to slaves, to household slaves, household servants here. He, uh, we, we dealt with this last week, but if you dip back into last week's portion a little bit, 18 through 20, we basically get this. I'll just summarize. He tells them, serve even harsh masters with respect while doing a good job, even, this just gets harder and harder, right? Serve harsh masters with respect while doing a good job, even when they're not looking. There's like five degrees of difficulty there that only uh, the Christian filled by the Holy Spirit can do. Let's continue reading in our passage this morning with his instruction to wives. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, wives, submit yourself to your own, there we are, husbands, so that, let's read the underline together, even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe their pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles or wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of good or great, rather, great worth in God's sight. You see that there is doing good that brings favor with God, that's good in God's sight. It pleases the Father. And so in summary, he's saying live with your unbelieving or at least disobedient husbands, but don't just put up with them. How are we to live? We are to live, wives are to live with purity and modesty. He even says reverence and submission. Then in verse 7, husbands, your turn. Let's read together verse 7. Uh, just the underlined portion together. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Not to be overlooked, that portion is correctly translated. I was informed by Greek scholars this morning. God's serious about that understanding stuff. But there's one piece about this verse, and this verse has about four different aspects that can be confusing, even controversial. There's one thing that's relevant to our study, and that is understanding what Peter is writing whenever he calls the wife a weaker partner, or your translation might say weaker vessel. There's an article by Nugent that Wayne referenced last week, and I would again commend that article to you for further study. He goes into several different arguments as to why weaker partner might be better understood as spiritually fragile unbeliever. I'll let your elders be dogmatic about it. However, I think it's relevant because of the bigger context. It, it's, it's fairly evangelistic if you look at and put weaker vessel next to, listen, harsh masters, right? Disobedient, if not unbelieving husbands. And all of a sudden, weaker vessel could translate, again, for other reasons as well, as unbelieving wives. And just imagine that being, quote, unequally yoked in that way, that, that mistreatment could come from the, the, the bottom up. As the person with headship in the home, there could be a misunderstanding that's pretty severe in terms of faith or other things. So he as a Christian might be fairly often misunderstood or his, his leadership or service in the home might be unappreciated. You could imagine how that would lead to mistreatment. In the same spirit of understanding, at least, we can uh, also see that applied to husbands or fathers with their children. You know, Paul's instruction in Ephesians 6, do not provoke your child. 
And so here with his instruction to husbands, we understand that mistreatment isn't always by those in charge or those who are our husbands or those who are our parents or those who are government officials. Mistreatment can also come from those who we are, whose whose charge we have, who we are responsible for. And so he says, whatever the case may be, slaves, wives, husbands, lead, serve your family, in this case, with an understanding heart. Finally, Peter, again, not to leave anybody else out, he gives final uh, general instructions. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. I'll read the underlying portion together as well. Be like-minded, this is to everybody, and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, alternatively, giving a blessing. Giving a blessing. And so we've got a lot of instructions. We've got a lot of ways to flesh out this whole living for righteousness thing. We are to endure unjust treatment by whether it be harsh bosses, right? Whether it be uh, misunderstood or unbelieving or disobedient spouses or uh, a family member that, that is unbelieving and does not understand. And that might provoke lots of mistreatment that we are to endure that in a way that pleases God, being, Lord, helping us without sin in our interaction, without sin in our motive or our attitude. This is a high bar to clear. And so what do we do? We, we are called to be all of those things, respective of our role. And by the way, children, you're not left out. I wanted to tag this on real quick. Peter gives you a pass. Paul doesn't give kids a pass. Okay, This same principle applies to you. So if I could just put an asterisk by children's there. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, they are charged in, in the same spirit. Right? Even a Christian child with unbelieving parents, if we were to compare them all apples to apples, are to honor parents and obey from the heart. How in the world do we do this? And not just not do the bad, but, but do the good. Peter's instructions end with the word bless. Don't just not revile or not retaliate, but, but do good to the point where you're going to be a blessing. That word bless comes from the Greek word eulogia. We, we get what English word from that? You guys hear it? Eulogy. It means to say good things, basically. But in context, as it's applied to our life, it's to praise or bless. Or we might even be wise to translate this as, or to understand this as praying for those who are harsh or unbelieving or understanding who mistreat us. So this is impossible. And so the last question is kind of begged. How in the world are we to do this, right? So just to recap, what did Jesus do? Suffered mistreatment, sinlessly. And what are we to do? Same thing, right? How in the world do we do what is otherwise impossible? Uh, Wayne mentioned this last week, and just to kind of quote him, uh, some overlap with theme here in terms of loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us. Wayne said this. Again, the question is begged, how are we to do this? How is this even possible? Well, he says, in our own strength, it's not. But Christians have a what? Super power. And that power is obviously the power of the Holy Spirit. I was tempted not to put it on the screen, but we have an annual theme called Undaunted. And we have an annual theme verse, which is, anybody know it? Okay, let's put it on the screen. Let's help us out. 2 Timothy 1.7. Let's read this together. Ready? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of and sound judgment. So Lord, help us to endure mistreatment in a way that pleases you.
And so with the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do it how Jesus did. After all, he is our example. I love this word in our passage. It's my favorite part of the passage. And I think the whole thing hinges on this. If you see in verse 21, where Peter reminds us, it's one of the first verses we read this morning, that Jesus is our example. He's given us an example to follow. That Greek word is hupogramos. Hupogramos. Really cool word. It's a compound word made up of two words that literally means to write from underneath. You guys know where I'm going? You, you get the word picture that's happening here? In the Greek, there's a really clear word picture of tracing something's outline or copying something's image. So Christ is our copied image. That It's the original that we are copying. My five-year-old daughter, Haddon, she's learned her letters. I don't know why they're her letters. I don't know why we say it that way. But she's learned like, the letters, the alphabet. She can actually write all. Never mind, I won't brag too much. But she's written a couple things. And she wrote this just the other day. Uh, I gave her something to write that kind of would remind us of what we're studying here. Can you guys read that, though? What does it say? I love it. That's my favorite. And, and I want, the person who said this will remain nameless, but they said, have her rewrite it because Jesus isn't on the same line. But I think Jesus loves that. I think it's amazing. And then she practiced her A, you know, uppercase, lowercase, even though the lowercase is arguably much bigger than the uppercase. You get the idea. She's done this. She's done this the same way probably all of us have. We've done a thousand of these worksheets. It starts with the boldly printed letter, Right. And the more advanced ones uh, that, that are a little more controlling and bossy, they put numbers and arrows that show you which way to write the letters because there is a, a right and wrong way. And then you move on to the second part of the sheet, right? And it's either more faintly printed letters or it's like we have on, on the screen here and they are dashes. And you're essentially connecting the dots while you're hoopogramos your letter. You're copying, you're tracing your letter, and then you're off to the races. You have blank spaces to now practice what you've just, uh, on your own, what you've just traced by hoopogramos. Peter is saying, trace Christ. Copy Christ. Uh, one of the big differences between learning our less letters here and imitating Christ in our suffering, something that odds are you probably all walked in to some degree. You're, you're having to learn how to copy how Jesus would handle this situation. Whatever the hurt, whatever the, the mistreatments. And so the good news is we're never, ever left to the blank spaces on our own. You know what I'm saying? Whenever you learn a letter, there's a thousand different ways where you can write an A or a B. There's a million different font types. But for the Christian, our font type is set, which would be super annoying for word processing purposes. But for the Christian life... How freeing, how comforting is it to know that we are never on our own in this case, that our font type is Christ, that the way we handle it, the way we are motivated through it, the what we think about the person that's harmed us, the steps we take, the words we use, all given to us as an example by Christ. So Peter's saying, trace Christ. One theologian, Bruce Metzger, said this, I think, about this process, and I think it's perfect. He says, whoever or wherever the Christian may be, the Lord's words and the Lord's ways must always be one's guide. Jim Thorpe comes to mind again, and it's because of this. Jim Thorpe, as a, a winner, gold medal winner of the pentathlon, but certainly the, the decathlon, 10 events Near perfect, better than anyone in the world, at least on average, when you put all events side by side, 
better. Talk about just the diversity of an athlete to, to do all of those events so well. And it begs the question, can Jesus really uh, be an example for a slave and a wife? Can Jesus truly be our example for children and for husbands? Can he be that versatile of an example? And the answer is yes. It's, it's yes. So, so whatever you brought in this morning, however the Holy Spirit might be applying this to your heart or your life, know this, that Jesus has sinlessly suffered every mistreatment that you and I will ever experience. Let me say that again. Some of you don't believe me, but he's this versatile. He, he's this talented, so to speak, in terms of not just relating and, and sympathizing with us, but he can empathize in a way sinlessly that maybe you've never considered this morning. That there is no uh, mistreatment that you've experienced, at least in, in principle, that Jesus cannot say, yeah, I've, I've felt that. I've been there. And he knows our temptations. And as a writer of Hebrews says, always without sin. And so what are those words and those ways of Jesus that we might follow kind of Bruce Metzger's point here? And so we know that we are to suffer mistreatment sinlessly. How in the world do we do that? By following Jesus' example. Well, how did he do it? Two things. Two things that we see Peter make a case for. First is trust God's judgment. Trust God's judgment. Look back at verse 23 with me. Verse 23, when Peter wrote this, we've already read this. Let's, Let's remember this. Uh, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Read this with me. But entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If Jesus needed to entrust himself to the one who judges justly while in his earthly ministry, guess what, Christian? So do you. If you heard just the, the, the point made that if Jesus had to pray, so do we. The same principle is true. We see the condescension, the humility of our Lord and Savior in the form of a man, in in the form of a a human being, suffering for us so that whenever he went to the cross, he was without sin and blameless because someone had to take the form of man and live the life that you and I couldn't and die a death we deserve. And Jesus took that on himself. And so he, while he will return and judge, this was not time And so for the meantime, in his earthly ministry, he suffered quietly while entrusting himself to his father. I love how the NLT puts verse 23. He says, he left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. I love that. I love the the way that the NLT says that as kind of a supplementary translation It kind of unpacks a little bit what it means to entrust. And so if Jesus needs to entrust himself to the Father, guess what you and I do too? We need to leave our case oftentimes in the hands of a father who, not just any father, but the creator of the world, the judge of the universe. We can trust our case there. And Peter knows that we need this. We read in 1 Peter chapter 4, just a couple chapters later, same book, same letter. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. So are you trusting God's judgment? Now, to be sure, there are times where we are compelled because of moral obligation or we have legal uh, recourse to fight for justice. Christians should want as much justice in this life as possible. 
We are constantly told to love what is good and hate what is evil. Hosea comes to mind. And to establish justice. After all, it's a character issue of God. God is righteous and holy in justice. It would be, it would be uh, kind of counter uh, the person of God, counter the character of God for Christians, those of us who know and love God, to not care about a wrong being done. We, we should care. We should be provoked by injustice, even by mistreatment. But to what degree? We should want as much justice in this life as possible, but the whole in this life part is the operative word. We know that there is a future perfect judgment coming. And so we know that if we've gone through the steps we need to, if we've written our senator, if we've had a hard, respectful conversation, uh, if, we, if we've uh, even, with last week's example, if we filed suit with something, having tried to reconcile things uh, relationally first, we know that we are free to take certain measures as they are given to us. And yet, whenever those things don't work, when the courts or your favorite advocacy group fails you, what do you do? Where do you go? Or maybe for most of us, we would say maybe it's not court worthy. But what about all the emotional hurt and the relational mistreatment we've experienced? Where do we go? When the hurt is real, we've legitimately been sinned against. And the systems and the advocacy uh, 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 places and people and groups that that we might go to really solve the problem don't work. Where do you go? Let me read you a portion of a book that I was reading this week by Dane Orland. It's called Gentle and Lowly. He writes this. Consider his words. Perhaps you have a reason or you have reason to be angry. Perhaps you have been sinned against and the only appropriate response is anger. Be comforted by this. Jesus is angry alongside you. He joins you in your anger. Indeed, his anger, he is angrier than you could ever be about the wrong done to you. Your anger is just a shadow of his. And his anger, unlike yours, has zero taint of sin in it. As you consider those who have wronged you, let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted, for it is an anger that springs from his compassion for you. Christian, when, not if, when we are mistreated, and I know that has a million layers. Mistreatment can be fairly uh, small on, on the register scale, and it can be quite severe. But, but I would say regardless of the response of the depth of hurt, whenever we have been mistreated, we would be wise to consider whose law was broken, who was mistreated most. Here's what I'm thinking. In Psalm 51, it's kind of the famous confession repentance psalm from King David. And David writes this in Psalm 51. Against you, and in the Hebrew it's repeated here for emphasis, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David here repenting, confessing adultery and murder. You alone, Lord, have I sinned against. I think Bathsheba would take objection to this, don't you? I think if she could, she would grab that prayer out of the air, write her name on it against you, O Lord, in in heaven and uh, and over the earth. And Bathsheba, has David sinned, right? So please sure do whatever you want with him. But, But my name's on there. He has also sinned against me. And no doubt Bathsheba was was legitimately sinned against. And Uriah, her former husband, was sinned against. And that 
poor innocent little child that lost his life because of David's sin was sinned. David mourned his sin. He grieved his sin. And by God's grace, the same grace we need today, he was able to see his sin as sin. And yet there were consequences for it. So he grieved his sin, but he knew something while he penned this psalm. That whenever we break a law, whenever we harm or offend someone, there is something, a law that transcends even how I feel about it. God had his law broken. This idea is what Paul writes about in Romans 12. And this kind of provokes him to encourage us in much the same way as Peter is. Paul writes this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. vengeance is mine, I will repay. God's saying, I'm the one who is ultimately sinned against. Bathsheba, absolutely, but indirectly. Have you ever been sinned against and harmed? Absolutely, but you've been sinned against indirectly. It's still legitimate. It needs a response. And there will be no wrong done that isn't righted by our perfect judge one day. And so maybe we wait But we wait with hope, knowing that nothing will fall through the cracks, that our perfect judge will not let anything brought into his courtroom that just slips out the door because some money is slid under the table to a bailiff. There will never be any injustice in the universe, but it might not happen today. He says, I will repay. So this is what causes Christians to cringe at violent demands for justice. Because we we know that a future judgment is coming. So whenever we hear no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. If you do not give me what I deserve, and, and frankly, whoever might say that might in fact deserve some sort of recourse legally. That's not the question. But if that violent claim is made with, if you don't give me what I deserve, I will cause such chaos. I will do even more harm because of the harm that you've done me. The Christian cringes at that because we know and our parents have always taught us two wrongs don't make a right. Now there are ways and times where fighting for justice, establishing justice takes more effort than others. But whenever we break God's law in order to correct a breaking of God's law, do you see the contradiction there? So for the Christian, we cringe at such violent demands for justice because we believe in a future hope. But at the same time, we also cry uh, for the people who feel like that's their only option. We, We resonate, we sympathize with the fact that that is consistent with a godless worldview. So we cringe at violent demands for justice now. But at the same time, we are saddened by the fact that it's consistent with the hopelessness of a godless worldview. I hope you feel both. I hope you cringe and cry. I hope it bothers you. It kind of provokes in you something that is inconsistent with our hope of judgment at the same time makes you sad or sympathize with the godless like Calvin did. Calvin writes this about entrusting ourselves to God, the hope of a future judgment. He says, it would be a very hard thing for us to be subjected to the will of the ungodly. And everybody said... If not, and not, so that would be hard, and not if we did not have God caring for our wrongs. There was no cause for the ungodly, or for the godly rather, to fear as though they were without any protection. For since it belongs to God to defend them and to undertake their cause, they will possess in their souls patience. And it is this fearless, patient, 
trust in God that Peter writes about Sarah. We cut short the, the Peter's instruction to women. Let's read the rest of it in verses 5 and 6. And look at this patient, fearless trust in God in Sarah. Peter writes this, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For in the past, the holy women who uh, put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You've become her children when you, read this with me, do what's good and don't fear any intimidation. Now, Abraham asked Sarah to say some or to do some questionable things. Maybe not outright sin, but questionable at least. And yet here, her blind subservience is not what's being praised. It's her trust in God and how it freed her to obey her husband, Abraham. Second thing, briefly, let's finish reading the rest of our portion. We see that trusting God's judgment allows us, frees us to secondly desire God's blessing. Look at verses, verse 9 with me through the end of our portion. Since you were called for this, read this with me, so that you may inherit a blessing for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. I love this, that it points out that we are both destined. It is part of who we are, not just to suffer, but that same word is used. We are destined also for glory. We are destined for reward. In this case, to inherit a blessed inheritance. Find me any good thing, any spiritual promise in Scripture, and I will show you something that Jesus alone deserves to receive and enjoy forever. Yes? But by faith in him, we are made one with him. And this, this is so scandalous almost, but it is true. We too reap the benefits of these eternal and heavenly rewards because of our faith in Christ. But these heavenly rewards, this blessed uh, assurance, yes, but also uh, inheritance, it is heavenly and it is eternal. But look at Peter's list in verses 9 through 12. These are all things that can be enjoyed today. These are all things that can be enjoyed on this side. These are blessings that we enjoy, that, that God offers us as we seek to, be, uh, to live in righteousness, even in the context of mistreatment. We can be blessed in these ways. We'll look at the list here in just a second, because I'm going to ask you to pick which is more blessed, to receive these blessings that we read about in 9 through 12, or... To gratify your flesh whenever you are being mistreated. You have to pick one. And so to warm us up, have you ever played the game, would you rather? Okay? All right, just real quick, we'll do two examples. Would you rather have the ability to see 10 minutes into the future or 150 years into the future? 10 minutes? 150 years? Still thinking we'll talk about it at lunch? The rest of you? Okay, one more. Would you rather be forced to sing along or forced to dance along with every song you heard for the rest of your life? Sing along, dance along, fewer brave souls. Okay, I see. All right, now the important stuff. Now you're warmed up. You ready? Because you can only pick one. Which is more blessed? We're going to change the title of the, the game here. Which is more blessed? To love life or to put them in their place? Agreed. 
Which is more blessed? And, and, and think about it. Okay, This was not for literal response. I did not expect you to say that out loud. Because if we're honest, we know the right thing to say. And praise God if this is a knee-jerk reaction and we believe it. If that's the case, you've probably answered wrong a couple times and you're learning. But for the most of us, this is not a knee-jerk reaction, at least in the moment. And praise God as we grow in Christ when it is. It's evidence of his Holy Spirit empowering us to live differently. Second question, which is more blessed, see good days or get even? Absolutely. Which feels better sometimes if we're honest? All right, Lord help us. Yes, yes. Which is more blessed, answered prayer or watching them eat crow or humble pie? Answered prayer is far more blessed. Which is more blessed, lastly here, favor with God or making them pay or even seeing them pay from a distance? Guys, answered prayer, favor with God, seeing good days and loving life is far more blessed. We cannot have the attitude on the right and enjoy the, the, the blessings on the left. And if you notice, we, we, could, we would have to first trust God's judgment, which would then free us from the stuff on the right so that we can truly enjoy uh, for the rest of our days in Christ the things on the left. Trusting God's judgment is a critical part of the equation. But we can all rest assured that Christ is coming to judge. Yes? Christ is coming to judge, and he will give every single one of your enemies exactly what they deserve. Or, alternatively, he will show them the same mercy he has shown you. It's no wonder that Psalm 34 comes to Peter's mind as he writes this. If you don't know this, he's quoting portions of Psalm 34. We're going to read this as we close here in just a minute. But I love the connection here. Peter here in his letter quotes from different pieces of Psalm 34. If you know anything about Psalm 34, it's David who writes this. Uh, possibly even while he's in hiding and on the run for his life from King Saul, which is described in 1 Samuel 19 through 20-something. Read, read the story. If you read the story of David running from Saul, literally he's trying to like pin people to the wall with spears. He is after blood. He's trying to kill David, and David is on the run. And he's given every single opportunity to endure mistreatment in a righteous way, while trusting God to defend him, and while wanting God's blessing more than it would uh, feel good to avenge the flesh. Read that story. But that same David in the hills in hiding writes Psalm 34. So let's read Psalm 34 together, and I will pray. We'll read the underlined parts together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and... Oh, I'll slow down next time. Verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life, to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove them all, to remove all memory of them from the earth. Last verse together. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. Amen. Let's pray.